This is Always Remember The Mod State Podcast And now, your hosts Always Remember Others may hate you Alright ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the one and only Mod State Podcast uh, Before we dive into today's episode, I would like to reach out to all of our listeners Wherever you are listening in at on this planet Earth whether it be foreign or domestic, thanks for tuning in. It's certainly what keeps us powered and energized uh, to come back week after week to have pretty engaging conversations about what is going on here in the U.S. and abroad. As always, head over to modstate.com for more opinion pieces. You can reach out to us at modstate at modstate.com if you'd like to leave us comments, criticisms, concerns, critiques, um, and anywhere that you can leave any comments uh, you can go over to podomatic.com forward slash mod state to um, leave any comments on these podcast episodes all right well this episode is a special episode it's the first in a long time to have a speaker other than just myself and john uh, but today on this episode i bring in a special guest candace smith who will discuss with me a bit about what's going on in israel and gaza city mainly the increased tensions in um, that area of Israel um, in the Palestinians. We dive into a number of topics. We set up with a little bit of historical context um, and the current situation with the settlements and what has really pushed the uh, sort of tensions over a boiling point in that area. But before we get started, <clears throat> a little background on Candace. So Candace Smith is an art historian who obtained her master's of arts in art history in 2019. Um, she uh, currently is researching and explores the issues of power, identity, politics, and built space in the context of post-Lebanese art institutions and reconstruction. Um, she's also presented and lectured on power, space, and contemporary um, Arab art practices, both as a lecturer and conference speaker. Um, she's also spent um, time abroad um, in working in places like Beirut with prominent art collectors and foundations. She also completed her undergraduate thesis work on 21st century street art and created uh, during times of conflict in central Cairo and the West Bank. So <clears throat> uh, beyond that, um, she was most recently invited back um, to university to speak about Arab art with the Texas Tech Health Science Center Program for Global Health. So I really, really appreciate um, Candace's perspective and background and knowledge um, really helping me understand some of the nuances and obviously the complexities and the perspective by which I should be um, thinking about the Middle East in general. Um, I, I only know as much as I have been willing to research and just from my perspective in the past as uh, in the army and military service, um, Candace comes from a, a very, uh, a really unique perspective. And this was a really, uh, hopefully one of uh, many future interviews that we can have. So uh, without any further delay, i bring you Candace Smith. Well, here is the official interview. Miss Candace Smith, how are you today? I'm good. How are you doing, Nathan? Doing, doing well. It's funny. We've had a lot of phone conversations. Um, you and I have gone back and forth. And then when you actually hit the record button on a podcast, it's like, oh, it gets all oh, weird. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I'm, ha I'm happy to have you. I did a little um, introduction, um, but I'd like you to go ahead and, well, I mean, obviously you can tee this up here. Um, I, for whatever reason, have made you like my resident expert on a lot of the things that go on in the Middle East, given the fact that you've got a bit of academic background and personal experience, friends, and a good network in that area. And I've, as we've seen the conflict in Israel and Palestine increase, or the tensions rise, I've looked to you to help me sort of wade through this and make sure that my perspective on it isn't really skewed one way or another, or I, I just, I know there's a lot of different opinions and perspectives on what's going on there right now. And I'd like to, 
your opinion or not even just your opinion, but your analysis on this um, for our listeners. So we just have a different perspective. So that's the tee up. Um, but I'm going to give you a chance to go ahead and introduce yourself. Welcome to the Mod State podcast. Um, so I actually, you know, not became interested, but I visited Lebanon in 2011 with a friend of mine from high school. And I just remember this whole process. I mean, it was the Arab Spring, we're watching it on TV, and I'm buying my plane tickets. And I just remember all of the warnings that my family was telling me and my friends like, oh, you know, be careful when you go over there and giving me all this advice of like how I was going to have to act. Um, and, you know, in reality, it was not that way at all. I mean, you know, I made some of the closest friendships that, you know, I still keep in touch with everyone. I've been back and visited multiple times, um, even when my friend doesn't visit. Her family asks me how she's doing. So when I actually got back from this trip and um, I, was, I was in the middle of switching majors um, at university because uh, I realized I really did want to be in the arts. Um, and when I got into art history and picking my languages, um, I picked up Arabic um, and I had really enjoyed learning it. Um, when I was in starting my art history classes, I started noticing a lack of research and kind of information on all of the art that I'd seen when I was over in Lebanon, um, like, you know, contemporary artists. And that kind of, I guess you could say, sparked my journey and just, you know, the more friendships I've made and like the more I've learned, um, you know, I've become very passionate about it. It kind of, you know, it kind of feels like a second home. Um, yeah. Yeah, I would certainly say, um, and I do remember when you first went to Lebanon and I, I mean, I thought it was great, but I, yeah, <laughs> I wasn't, um, I wasn't shocked by the level of concern that a lot of, and I'm not blaming, like, there's like ignorant ignorant ethnocentrism, right? Like this this scary part of the world where people don't, I mean, at the time, I guess we were still embroiled in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so that's a lot of the perspective that people have. Um, So, I mean, that's the way it was when I joined the army. It's like, oh, well the big bad scary place (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah i I would imagine as you develop those relationships as you um, develop and grow in your studies that a lot of the nuances and the relationships of different people in different groups in the middle east sort of take shape and become more i would say when you know people in specific countries like lebanon like people i know in other countries the perspective shifts a little bit from the overall thirty thousand foot view narrative and I think that's why I really wanted you, well, first off, we've been threatening to do this for a while. And, a while. <laughs> and I don't think that it, at this point it's bad that we waited to do this because I think there's more of an urgency. And <clears throat> to tee up that urgency, it's, you know, I can open up my phone here and the AP through CNN, through Al Jazeera, through every, I would say, middle of the road uh, news outlet is talking about what's going on in Gaza or outside of uh, in Gaza City. So, I mean, the headlines are Israel warplanes stage more heavy strikes across Gaza City, calls mount for ceasefire. There's been a number of things that have happened over the weekend. And I think it would be helpful. Um, well, I'll tell you where I, I come from and I'll get out of your way. But I... <laughs> I certainly try to, um, at least at this, in on this podcast on every issue, is to try to approach it by looking at both sides. And I feel like, um, in this case, for a lot of Americans, either it's just not on their radar and there's a bit of apathy to it, or it's this position you take <clears throat> where you're not entirely sure what position you should be taking for a number of reasons. So whether that's sort of environmental and something that's been ingrained with you um, through childhood into adulthood to believe one way, um, you, you know, maybe those perspectives shift when you, when you meet new people, but what are we supposed to be thinking about this? And I think you have a, a certainly a one perspective on this. You or I wouldn't say one perspective, but you have a, um, a very specific perspective on this. And, and I'm, I would like to hear this, uh, your sort of objective facts, beliefs and opinions on it. So I will kind of get out of your way. I, I think 
we talked about framing this. And so I'd love to hear just your initial response to the current events that are going on. Uh, but then talk a little bit about the history that got us to this point and, and why I think you and I have talked about this, why it's important. I think context is so incredibly important in these situations. So that being said, there's the tee up. Um, what, what are you hearing right now? What are your thoughts? (laughs) Yeah. Quite a small order. Um, so perspective wise, cause you know, I do study modern contemporary art in the middle East, um, which puts me more, um, on the Palestinian side, but that's not to say that I don't understand the Israeli side. Also, um, I grew up in Texas in the South, you know, conservative Christian family. Um, and within that kind of culture, there is strong support for Israel. Um, and contextually in the, in the United States, like I do understand, um, why there is support for Israel in the region. I mean, strategically, um, if you look even at like during the Cold War, I mean, you know, there were Soviet allies in Egypt. Um, Egypt was not allied with the US. You have um, other countries, I think Syria also, and you know, Israel was in need of a friend. Um, And you have like a very strategic like port access as well. You have access to the Mediterranean, you have access to um, the Gulf. Um, so it's more than just, um, you know, it's, it's really complex. And I know that people say it's complex um, and kind of leave it at that, but oh, where to get started on this conflict um, and the situation that's been happening in the past couple weeks, um, I kind of figured out a timeline. If y'all have been looking at the news articles and kind of reading what's been going on, a lot of the timelines are very vague. Mm-hmm. Um, and they mention um, incidents in, you know, that are closer to the present. And then they'll, you know, mention events which happened earlier, which gives you a skewed perspective of when things happened. Um, so for context, it was the end of 2019, or it was the end of 2020, when these families in this, um, you know, in this area of East Jerusalem, in this neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, were served with eviction notices. Um, And one of the most convincing arguments that you'll see against this is there's, um, that this is a legal issue, that this has to do with, you know, rent, Um, This is not about human rights. This is, you know, a civil case. Mm -hmm. Um, But it goes deeper into that because the history of um, land law and kind of how we got here goes all the way back to the 1858 Ottoman um, land reforms. During their Tanzimat period, there there was this kind of like attempt at modernization in a sense um, in a very Ottoman fashion. Um, And even though there were these laws which required people to start registering for their land and then they could own it, you still had very um, ingrained practices of land sharing. And these even continued up until the 60s. And a lot of the Ottoman Empire and the British um, mandate government, um, they still honored these traditions and they still followed them. But when Israel, you know, kind of gets in control, they exploit these land laws, um, which deal with state ownership of land outside of cities as an excuse to take this land. So this is kind of an exploitation of early Ottoman law. So would you um, say, would would there be a point um, in the Ottoman regime where all this would have happened and a lot of the, the individuals that owned this land or lived on this land really had no part in it, really had no say, or even if they did, might not have been in a position to um, object, rather, to um, the center of that empire was far yeah. away. So, and the just <laughs> generation sort of went by after that, and there really was nothing, nothing bad happened. It, it was business yeah. as usual. Yes. And then business was not as usual. Yes, and then business was not as usual. I mean, not only was the Ottoman Empire, like, you know, the capital's far away, but you also have, um, when you would register for land, there were, it was an attempt to get more taxes. You'd have land taxes. There was, um, 
you know, you would have to enlist in the military. So mm-hmm. there were all these things that came along with it that weren't really, you know, enticing for peasants, mm-hmm. um, like peasant populations. And also think about kind of, you know, how information would spread, um, not quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, from Turkey down, you know, across the Ottoman Empire, mm-hmm. you have um, more remote villages um, with people, you know, maybe they weren't the best informed, they didn't have the best legal advice. Um, so it's a system that's very easily exploited. When a government really far away tells you, hey, just show up and register for this land, well, whoever gets there first kind of gets it. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't really in a lot honor, of cases, doesn't, doesn't yeah. honor the inhabitants that, that are living on that land. Yeah. Okay. And in a lot of cases, you had wealthier um, people kind of buy up land, but they would let people continue to live on this land because, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's there's a village, they're working the land, it's profitable, um, you know, but this is a system that becomes exploited <clears throat> later. And this is, what you're saying is this is what's currently being exploited in uh, Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in East Jerusalem that they've been served these eviction notices. And I think there's a lot, there's a number of reports that there's actually what you would call settlers. um, That's sort of that colonial type model um, that have just taken over these homes for the most part, or have are what we would call in the United States squatting, essentially sort of running the time clock out. Yes. Um, absolutely. I actually pulled this up because I wanted to have a really, um, I wanted to have this specific for everyone. Um, there is one of the residents actually, um, in Shakespeare has spoken out and he's posted about the stories of how these homes get taken. Um, so just for a little bit more context, when you have, you know, the Ottoman empires kind of, you know, petering out you know, you have the British mandate taking over. um, And there were a lot of Christian Palestinians that sold their land and they moved to Beirut. A lot of them were moving to the U.S. I mean, that's why you have such a large um, kind of Lebanese Arab population in Dearborn, Michigan. Um, That's where a lot of those people moved over was, you know, around that like late 1800s, 1880s to kind of 1900s. and some of them were selling their land to Jewish settlers, but not all of it. And that's what's important to remember. It's not all of this land was sold at this time. Um, and of actually a very small percentage of land was actually under state control. Um, and a lot of Palestinians did actually own their homes. Um, the issue was more of the land around it. So um, here's his story. There's this, the families, the Rawi and the Hanun family. Um, Their homes were initially stolen um, during what he says, the settler organization in 2002, which was their second intifada, Um, you know, which is more of like a forceful eviction from a home. You know, if violence is imminent, you're not you're not staying in your home, but you do expect to go back when everything settles down. You still own it. Um, So but settlers who are protected by the Israeli forces and the Israeli police took over the Zawi home before the occupation court had even made a ruling um, on these homes and who lived in them. Um, Which is funny because how can you make a ruling on a home when the occupants have been forcefully expelled? So then in 2003, the settler group who took over the house sold the rights of the property to another settler organization, um, Nahalat Shimon, which is a US-based company owned by an American. Um, which is, you know, kind of where we get real messy with Israel. Um, and he says that it's worth mentioning that neither of the organizations own land in Sheikh Jarrah, yet the courts refuse to challenge um, or authenticate their documents, which is another issue. Um, Palestinians do not have the same rights under Israeli law, um, which is something we can get into later, but there are organizations which actually, um, where Israelis will go and provide um like legal representation and provide evidence for Palestinians that are taken to Israeli courts. Um, So this Nahalat Shimon proposed a project to build 250 settlement units on top of Sheikh Jarrah um, homes. And of course, the Israeli authorities approved this. So in 2006, the family's lawyer recommended that they go back into their homes um, and based his advice on the baselessness of the settlers' claims so the families returned because there were no settlers living there yet. Um, 
But it wasn't long. Um, the settler organizations came back and the families were facing the threat of dispossession again. Um, in 2008, the courts ruled to forcibly, forcibly evict them, um, which prompted another solidarity campaign. And then in 2009, they were thrown out of their homes and to their surprise, many of the solidarity activists who were supposedly there to protect them turned out to belong to the Israeli intelligence unit, um, the Mustaruddin. So there's just a lot of kind of mess tangled mm. up in the um, change of ownership of these homes. And that is what's certainly sparking a bit of the, un, or the, the yes. tension there as it's almost come to a head at this point. Where Absolutely. You can think about it from <clears throat> humanizing perspective. It's like you're taking my home. Um, not to mention it was towards the end of Ramadan as well, which is a huge disruption to that particular religious event. Um, yeah. and there was also, um, I don't know, again, this is f more my observation, but it, it certainly seemed and was reported that there was a lot of forcible removal from a number of mosques in, in Israel as well, which certainly would add to just, I, I would imagine in the middle yes. of Ramadan, um, just <laughs> trying to, to worship, um, and you're running into. Um, these forces evicting you and making your life fairly disruptive. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought up Ramadan, though. So for those of y'all who don't, who don't know, um, Ramadan ran from April 12th to May 12th. Um, and Ramadan um, is usually a time that, you know, your more like spiritual and religious sentiments are like heightened. I mean, it's the reason that in Afghanistan, the Taliban got away with um, destroying the Bamiyan Buddhas. And they didn't get a lot of lashback because it was during Ramadan. Um... But to put this also in perspective, Jerusalem Day is on May 9th to May 10th, which is an Israeli national holiday celebrating the reunification of East Jerusalem, um, you know, with the rest of Jerusalem and Israeli control over the city. And this is often um, celebrated by um, very um, provocative parades through Palestinian neighborhoods by Israelis. Um, those are the white national, excuse me, white nationalist guys. Um, those are the ultra nationalist Jewish nationalists that would have parades through Palestinian neighborhoods, yelling death to Arabs, stuff like that. Oh, this is this isn't um, this is different than you know kind of what's been going on now with with this you know kind of ultra nationalist mm -hmm. um, as a holiday though. Um, you know, not in this context, but even before it was, it's kind of a provocative holiday. Um, you know, at the end of that June, um, 1967, six day war where they got, um, Jerusalem back from Jordan. Um, and then on May 15th, you have that 73rd anniversary of that original Nakba, which is the, um, original expelling of Palestinians from their homes. I think it was like anywhere from, it, numbers range from like a quarter of a million to 700,000. Um, again, a lot of the documents were destroyed, um, and kind of hidden to make it vague, but, you know, so there's, there's very strong, um, kind of religious nationalist, um, sentiments during this time. I mean, you have Ramadan, you have Jerusalem day, you have the anniversary of the Nakba. I mean, things are running high, you know, tensions are high, feelings are high. Even yeah. on a, even on a good year. Probably. Yes, even yeah. on a good year. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and also, even to, to add another layer of context to this, I, I realize that there are two different things, but you also, <clears throat> probably fair to acknowledge that there was the um, uh, parade that turned, or really wasn't a parade, it was a gathering that turned incredibly deadly um, in Israel as well, um, yes. <clears throat> which had nothing to do with the Palestinians, however, would still sort of create an emotional level that would be probably higher um, than it normally would be as well. Absolutely. I think what else is going on? Um, Benjamin Netanyahu, their prime minister, is failing to form a government, at least as of right now, which mm -hmm. also is certainly how this plays, how that plays into what's going on is hard to say, but I'm sure a lot of people uh, could make assumptions. A lot of people thought he wouldn't, you know, be in power much longer. He's currently fighting three cases of corruption charges. He is appealing three cases of corruption charges. So, so here we are. Um, <laughs> here we, we are. Yeah, here we are. I think it, I think 
it was a, a, a really good sort of detail walkthrough on what has led up to a lot of the tensions. Now, I think a lot of the history that you discussed, even just to the Ottoman Empire on, is the result uh, or has created the result of many sort of tension and conflicts within this region over, you know, past, we'll just say 150 years, um, probably more over the last 73. Um, but I think there's certainly more history to talk about, but I think I'll come back to myself here and say that, you know, it's when I speak to a lot of other folks, as you probably have, that are certainly taking more pro Israeli stance, and especially in the context of debate and discussion, at least on this podcast, it is hard for me to, um, I, I don't, again, talking about the environmental factors, how I grew up to take one stance or another. <clears throat> and, and what does that mean? Why is it so hard for me to come out against uh, as if I, if I were to have a problem with an Israeli stance, now I'm against Israel and everyone, all of my Jewish friends, et cetera. But I think we were on a, we had a phone conversation and I had said, I think it's, it is your, your, that it is okay to actually, cause this isn't a religion or a, a race of people or a, really it's a political ideology that really pushes again. We talk about the settlement. Uh, you hear, we often hear about settlements in Israel, uh, the displacement of Palestinians. What is it? You know, why is that so popular in this region of the world? Why is it? Well, because it is an ideology. It's it, and it is backed by specific leaders within their government, right? So it isn't. You can sort of dislike the policies that are creating much of these issues, but you're not really. It, it's not about a whole group of people. It's a group. It's about the leadership and the perspective or the the campaigns the policies and the things that they would like to see in their country that affect other people and that is what is so important to talk about um, even though you could talk about the existence of that country in general you could that is a whole nother conversation aside from the fact that you could have this country and not have these problems there there's certainly yeah, and could. and i think that's <clears throat> the heart of my issue when i talk to other people about this this conflict, this ongoing issue between these two people, these two groups of people is it's, is it, it doesn't actually have to be this way because no one's going anywhere. I mean, this country is here to stay in the foreseeable geopolitical future. The Palestinians aren't necessarily going anywhere if they can help it. So we can't really think of a fairy, you know, a fairy dreamland in the next 50 years where there's neither parties or there's only one party, right? We have to figure out a way forward. And so again, there is a possibility with the political alignment, the right political alignment that you could see for peace. You could see at least basic rights given to groups of people there. Um, mm -hmm. But that's aside from even just the issue of existence in general and who gets dibs on what. So I think I'll stop there and let you sort of respond to a lot of what I said. Yeah, I mean, and you, you brought up a lot. Um, yeah, we know. can totally slowly unpack <laughs> all of those. I think the first thing is obviously the the, polit the political alignment, right? That there could be a, I don't know, we'll just pick like a really progressive hippie Israeli prime minister who's like, look, guys, we need to just live in peace and this is ridiculous. Let's let's reframe our thinking here, but we don't have that. <laughs> That's currently not. We don't. <laughs> um, but even with, even with a Benny Gantz, who is sort of the less hard line than Benjamin Netanyahu, but it also comes from a, a pretty deep military background. So does that change at all with that type of leadership? I, I don't know. I think a lot of people wouldn't be holding their breath on that either. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I kind of like how you bring this up because a lot of people want to know about, you know, what kind of what's going on with Palestine and Israel because they want to know, like, what stance they're supposed to have and what side they're supposed to choose, um, which, you know, is kind of counterintuitive to understanding the situation. Um, if you go in expecting to back one side or the other. Um, but so far as a solution, 
um, I think a lot of that would start with kind of giving Palestinians rights. Um, right now, Palestinians are unequal under Israeli law, and that is codified um, into the law. They use the word hafrata to talk about it, um, which means separation. So I was going to say, um, and, and maybe this, if, if our listeners weren't abundantly clear at, at this point, and I think this will really um, uh, be able to, to shed some light on at least your views on this, would you consider this an apartheid, which is the equivalent to South, what happened in South Africa um, and was eventually disbanded in 94? Um, and, and that is a similar term, right? The, the, the Arabic term that you just used. It's Hebrew. Or, that was Hebrew. <laughs> I'm Hebrew sorry, term. yes. Um, that Hebrew term, yeah. which is sort of the equivalent, but maybe not meant to employ the full weight of the word apartheid, which carries yeah. a lot of negativity. Um, yes, and a lot of people have trouble with calling what's happening in Israel apartheid because um, there were aspects of apartheid which were so much more extreme. Um, But think about this kind of more globally. You have hafrata, which means separation. You have apartheid, which literally means aparthood. You have segregation in the U.S. South, which is another term for separation. So there's all of these kind of words in different languages which mean the same thing um, and kind of result in codified government laws which separate your population based on race. Um, And there's a really good kind of infographic which I love using um, to kind of talk to people about this because there's these five different like aspects of apartheid um, in South Africa and Hafrata in Israel um, which align to give, give you a good sense of like how they're affecting these populations similarly. Um, you don't have to say that what's happening in Israel is identical what's happening in South Africa to know that you know it's kind of like we should we should kind of work on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you one you have land expropri- expropriation, which is kind of the you know front of what's happening now um, in that issue. You have racial classification, um, which even on identity cards you have racial racial classification between Israelis and Palestinians. Um, these classifications determine what roads you can drive on. Um, and things as simple as that. You have mass displacement, which you know kind of starts with that original Nakba in 1948. You have violent repression, um, which argue, arguably happens a lot more places than just <laughs> South Africa and Israel. Um, and you also have token independence, um, which in Israel looks like the Palestinian Authority, which has control over the West Bank. Um, in South Africa, that was the South African Bantustans. Um, so you kind of have these aspects which are looking very similar and kind of act similarly upon the population. And in that sense, yes, I would, you know, consider it very similar Interesting. to apartheid. So, yeah, so those are, I think, um, that certainly provides some, some clarity as to the similarities and something you pointed out. It doesn't have to be as worse. It doesn't, like, the benchmark isn't necessarily what happened in South Africa. Like, it needs to be that or worse. It just needs to fit... Uh, in a way, almost this sort of academic <clears throat> look in the different pillars that would make up that. Not to mention, I think there's something interesting. You had, you brought up the token government, um, which in some cases I think works to the benefit of sort of the um, the the government that would be conducting the apartheid, right? So in that case, you've got Hamas, um, which actually gives a justification for a lot of sort of the defense Israeli response yes Israeli response which look I'm I'm gonna step back I I can't point to every instance where it was self-defense you know that's I'm not in that position however I know geopolitically that's been used around the world to create this sort of uh this token government that also creates you a whole bunch of problems which help can continue to justify some forms of repression some forms of control, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of people like to look at, you know, the chain of retaliation to figure out where their loyalties lie or who they want to back, um, which is kind of funny to me. I mean, is it what the Hatfields and McCoys? <laughs> yeah. um, 
You can't, I mean, like, both sides have blood on their hands. Mm-hmm. Um, you, like, Hamas has blood on its hands. The IDF has blood on its hands. Israel has blood on its hands. The PLO had blood on its hands. I mean, nobody's clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't change the facts of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that Israeli citizens live with more freedom and rights, um, even rights to citizenship that Palestinians do not, um, which is something we have to figure out how to rectify. Yeah, um, so, and I think that's, before we sort of move on to that, because I think you have a, a number of interesting um, interesting ideas surrounding like what, what would create maybe a more just area like again acknowledging the fact that we are going to live together and that's just the way well we should all live together um any sort of deviation from that is should be questioned with a high level of uh scrutiny um or at least investigated but before we do that you had also um kind of moving back again this idea that there's different set of rights for different groups of people Mm -hmm. um and that there's these land rights that are sort of being manipulated in a way um, that are moving and displacing Palestinians. You had created a really good analogy um, when you talk to, well, you use Texas, for example, and in, in migration oh, with, one. yeah, this migration one. within uh, the United <laughs> States <wanna> for <laughs> some sort of context to what it might or be like analogous to a situation that you could find over there. I'd love to, I'd love to hear you. Yes. Uh, and this is one that I love, especially teaching in Texas. Um, and this isn't to tell you who's right or wrong, but just to try and make people kind of empathize with how Palestinians might feel, since many of the people that are in classes I teach or uh, things like that are very familiar with empathizing with Israel. Um, and I usually ask them, I'm like, how many of you are upset that Californians are moving to Texas? And I can tell you most of them are. I mean, there are memes about this. So imagine if Californians came to Texas and bought land and then started forcing Texans out of their homes. 100%, I can tell you, there would be an (laughs) uprising of Texans and they would be extremely proud of it. Um, We would bring back the come and take it flag, which, you know, there's the Texas secessionism. I mean, oh my goodness. And they would be loving it. Um, They would fight back. So the, they, the obvious you know point, like, exactly. You understand that feeling, you will understand how Palestinians feel. You've been living on that land. Um, someone tries to take it, excuse you? Yeah. So it's this idea. <laughs> and when I bring yeah. this up, a lot of people kind of start laughing because they're like, yeah, oh. I were already mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. As if there was some sort of loophole from some treaty when... Uh, with Mexico Post, and something, something happened and yeah. there's a little loophole that after 2020 Californians can come in and take <laughs> land from from Texans yeah and I, when, when when you when you brought that up to me um I, it it I was able to synthesize that in a way that it's like ah yeah that would be that would be crazy <laughs> The idea that someone could come and take the place that you live. I mean, we even have baked in eviction laws in the United States and most westernized countries that make it incredibly difficult for even the owner of property to be able to evict someone probably when they should be evicted and they're not doing the right thing anyway, like pay, as simple as pay. And so it it is harder for me to think about, at least in 2021, that you know, this would be something that I feel like I would have heard about a hundred plus years ago. And it's like, Oh yeah, that kind of probably makes sense who the law of the land wasn't quite as established. Maybe it was a monarch, not great courts. Like we'll just take someone's land over and it's all good, but it's happening in 2021 fairly blatantly in front of everyone. Um, And it does seem like a crazy, I, I guess it's harder for me to, justify when there's more and more reports about it that you know again i'm not saying israel shouldn't be here i'm just saying they probably shouldn't Mm -hmm. be doing that um and it seems a little a little intense and and does kind of make you question a bit of the sort of civil rights and just basic rights of the people there and the more i researched it the more um i was sort of shocked to find that 
in a, a lot of these pockets and islands within the area, um, there's a real lack of basic necessities as well, yeah. um, which again, isn't a testament of a group of people, but probably a government that has the resources to be able to adequately take care of individuals, yeah. so the Palestinians. Not only are resources scarce for um, a lot of people, especially in Gaza and the West Bank, but especially in the West Bank, you have a lot of resources that are kind of, should we say expropriated? Um, I think it's like most water comes from the West Bank and it's Palestinians in the West Bank that have least access to that water. Um, they have less than like, is it the UN's like daily humanitarian allowance? Like the, you know, the base amount of base how much amount. water a human should have access to a day and Palestinians have access to less. To less. Got it. And it's literally under the land that they're living on. Um, so you have a lot of issues like that. And it's not in the middle of a desert somewhere where no one's got yeah. it. It's right down the road or across a specific boundary line. There yes. would be that resource yeah. available. I mean, and not only that, but it's right down the street from the now Walden settlement where, you know, maybe you used to live and got kicked out of like, mm -hmm. oh my goodness, Texans would revolt. <laughs> we probably have more weapons than Hamas collectively as a state. So, <laughs> so I think, I think this is an interesting point. Um, to sort of dive into. And um, I know that we, we didn't originally discuss this in our precast, but yeah. I'd be curious on your perspective. One thing you had brought up um, that I did not talk about in the bio was your background coming from a, a Christian conservative um, <clears throat> yep. family. I was brought up um, in a similar background, um, probably very, very close. Um, but I guess in my, from, from the Christian perspective, like I didn't, I didn't, I didn't specifically learn about Israel in a context that I idolized it or um, it played into my vision of the resurrection and all of this biblical context. It, it, anyway, I I think maybe it's probably because I didn't read Revelations or the, the end half of the Bible because it was just too much of an acid trip for me. But how is it that there is a, a, a sort of division in viewpoints in the United States specifically. And I guess we're also competitive people. It is natural for us to want to take sides. What side am yeah. I supposed to take? And in this case, I think it's sort of, I guess, depending on what your viewpoint is on the specific issue in this region, you could take a side, but really we should be exploring this from, you know, exactly how we're exploring it and talking about it, right? Aside from yeah. how this country might fit into some sort of prophetic revelation in the future but where does that where does israel fit into sort of the christian narrative in the united states today and is it do you think it's something that's just been passed down so much or been cultivated so much people don't really understand what they're believing in but it's just yeah something about we have to back this no matter what this is we got to move the embassy to jerusalem we got to build it up as this spiritual holy land um mm -hmm. anyway <laughs> yeah so you're gonna have to excuse me on titles but y'all can all just go google this there was actually a book written so theodore herzl's the jewish state was kind of the first jewish um like national zionist project um which i think was in 86 the 1800s, but before that, there was a white Christian man who wrote a book on Christian Zionism. Um, <laughs> All right. Who kind of, you know, delved into a lot of these ideas before, you know, your you European Jews were looking into the ideas, like a, you know, kind of like a possible solution to all of the persecution that they had been enduring, and you know for a very long time and that was kind of worsening. Um, yeah, and so you have, especially in the United States and especially with American like evangelicals, you have this idea that the Jews should kind of reclaim Israel because then Jesus will be coming back. Okay, so um, it's, it's, it's kind of a selfish 
thing, right? It, it isn't like an allied you ship. Know, you get the Jews out of Europe, you get the Jews out of the U.S., and you get Jesus to come back. Um, but I think that that's kind of been watered down because if you ask, you know, your standard evangelical today, they're not really going to know that history. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just going to know that they were kind of raised um, in a very, you know, pleasant way towards Israel. Um, and if Palestinians were talked about at all, it probably wasn't positively. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think that was my experience was, you know, it wasn't that I was raised to have you know, attachments to Israel, but mm-hmm. we were raised, you know, talking about Israel and talking about, you know, God's people in a very historical context. Mm-hmm. Um, and we didn't discuss Palestinians. So in kind of your education growing up, it was, we didn't, we didn't even know anything like the existence of Palestinians and what they were experiencing was just not there. And what we knew about Israel was like God's people and, you know, this very righteous kind of sensation and it's Mm -hmm. very hard to kind of question and deal with a lot of those things um i think a lot of people when they're confronted with something like new like that that's so upsetting and jarring to what they've been taught um and what you know feels like is so is so good that it's an immediate stop to having that conversation um yeah which is an experience i've had with even my own family members (laughs) it's taken some time yeah well again it's exposure Right. And exactly. like, like I've talked with you over the, the past, you know, we'll just say a year. And it isn't that I specifically took one stance on Israel and Palestine, but it certainly, I knew it was, it was more complicated, a little bit more nuanced in terms of the tension that's there. Um, but it did give me a bit of perspective that, I, you know, I wasn't immediately jumping to one bias or another when I heard stories. And I think it, what you said was right on. I mean, it wasn't as if growing up we were praising Israel or like it was something that we were sort of baked into our worship. And But it was never really talked about negatively. But if you did hear about the Palestinian issue, it certainly was more the context no, seemed the more negative. Violence around <clears throat> yeah, it. It, it was always about violence. It was about airstrikes. It was about rocks being thrown. It was about Israeli soldiers being killed or, you know, yeah. these little stories that when you hear it's a prime, it's a primer every time you hear it. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the fault of the mainstream media. Maybe it's this weird relationship that the media and even the U S government take with the Israeli stance. Um, it was interesting um, how I was curious as how Biden would handle this because obviously the 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 mainline State Department message is to we give what four billion dollars in in aid to Israel. There certainly are great interests in that. Re- like you had said before, geopolitically, um, it's it's good to have at least someone um, who's got your back and you got their back in a in a region that is fairly volatile. I mean, it has been volatile for for years. Um, and I don't mean just yeah. Israel and Palestine. I mean the entire yeah. region. Yeah, uh, and I actually kind of want to dig into that. So this narrative of the violent Middle East is something that was perpetuated by Orientalist scholars. It didn't exist before this. I mean, what was it? In 1840, the first um, ambassador from Oman came to the United States, and everyone just loved him. I mean, he saved a ship off the coast, and, you know, just like, there was wonderful relationships. I mean, there's a letter from, I think it's like John Adams that talks about like the friendship that the U.S. is going to have with the Arab people, like the Muslim well, people. They were doing it, massive archaeological studies, at least France was, Britain was, in which was ancient Mesopotamia, in mm-hmm. Iraq, Iran, all through the Gulf. They were, they had been creating these relationships back into the 1700s. Yeah, and I mean, up to this point, the kind of, idea of the Middle East was not one of violence. It was one of um, like this historical foundation of, you know, our own existence. Like that is where life came from. That is where, you know, Christ came from. I mean, you have Europe and the U.S. is very Christian. Um, France, and it's still in the Louvre, they have the four rondels, which talk about like the four pillars of like French, you know, civilization. And you have you have France, you have um, what is it France? You have like Greece, Rome, and you have Egypt. <laughs> yeah. Egypt was not a pillar of you know 
brands. But I mean, it becomes part of this narrative, this internalized narrative of being part of the cradle of civilization. Mm -hmm. But these Orientalist scholars started this narrative of like violence. And especially after, I mean, think about this. You have in about the 1940s, you have World War II has ended. Um, what is it? I mean, there's austerity and um, like the British austerity. You couldn't even, they were like having trouble feeding their own people. In France, you have the same thing. You kind of have like a change of hand in the government. Um, I mean, a lot of Europe is destroyed. Mm -hmm. They're in debt. Great Britain and France could not maintain their colonies. I yeah. mean, you had the British were over India and Pakistan. They're all over, you know, half the Middle East and they split it up with France and France had like North Africa. Um, so you saw this massive see, decolonization. In the 40s, all they, they, they come in and they just partition everything up on these imaginary lines. They shove together. I mean, in Lebanon, you had half of Lebanon was a Christian you know, Ottoman state, and then the other half was Muslim and in Syria, and they just kind of draw a line around it, stick them together. I mean, a lot of Lebanon's problems come from like shoving these two, you know, or not even two, you have like 18 populations mm -hmm. um, into one state and saying, have fun, see ya. Um, you have that with like the India Pakistan partition, and it's all in like 47, 48, 49, and they're just like, all right, we can't take care of you anymore, go figure it out. Um, so it's really careful to talk about this, not in terms of like a history of conflict, but a history of like, you know, creating a power vacuum and then just leaving. Yeah. And then, you know, fighting over oil, you have, you know, BP and Iran and then, you know, so a lot of these things, they don't happen in a vacuum. They happened with a lot of kind of engagement with, you know, Great Britain, yeah. Europe, the U.S., which is not not to blame anyone, but like understanding this context, this isn't this violence didn't just happen. <laughs> yeah, well, it seems it seems as if, um, really, I think the the last, I mean, so it, you had colonialism, you had, uh, like you said, France and North Africa, you had, I mean, you had Spain and Portugal around the, the Horn of Africa, Dutch influence, uh, a lot of British and French influence in the Middle East. This was after the Ottoman Empire. So you still have this sort of like empire ruling a group of people that otherwise for the most part could go and uh, continue to live their lives and do whatever they needed. <clears throat> I think the Armenians probably would counter that narrative a little bit. Um, however, uh, but then you have colonialism. You have got, so that rule probably didn't change those, the, the way the people lived didn't really change that much maybe continued to be nomadic there was great cities where they were but then all of a sudden you just take there's massive decolonialization and we've got to keep it to the structure of the world we need to have countries and boundaries and checkpoints and that probably was also just not foreign foreign concepts. completely and yeah, i foreign that's, laws, that's where that's where we failed um and have continued to fail in places like afghanistan right so it's nothing against the people that live in afghanistan but they for i mean since since i mean obviously there was a major shift in in islam being the predominant religion um it but no one lived under the confines of a country or a centralized government that said here's the laws to follow here's i mean that that's just not the way that 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 wasn't the operating system for yeah. for so I mean, long. They did and they didn't. Um, they did have you. I mean, you have empires throughout the Middle East, yeah. um, Persia, North Africa. I mean, you know, the extent of the Islamic empires was larger than Rome. It made yeah. Rome look tiny. Um, and in a lot of these places, I know. I'm sorry, I'm getting off on like a historical no, tangent here. I think it's. I think it's great. Yeah. Um, but you actually have, when Islamic empires took over, they wouldn't conquer the people and implement their own law. They would kind of incorporate the existing um, government structure into mm. the, their own like empire. So the people that were in power would kind of stay in power because um, it's a lot easier to incorporate. And it's a system that already works for people and say, well, you know, now you pay us taxes. Yes. Um, then to like try and create your own new, you know, environment i mean under the you know all these islamic empires because muslims and christians were people of the book they most of the time had rights to follow their own laws um 
they they weren't subject to Islamic law. Um, you know, other populations who weren't Jewish and Christian had to follow, you know, kind of this Islamic governments, but like for like legal matters and marriage and all this stuff, Christians and Jews were able to have their own legal systems, I guess, mm-hmm. in a sense. So then when you have this, um, so, so circa 1947, end of the 1940s, uh, end of World War II, decolonialization happens. And so you've, yes, they, people have lived under specific empires that have probably been less oppressive and more oppressive, depending on, I mean, even back to the Persians who adopted that sort of, hey, you know what, continue to govern the way you want to do it just throw me some taxes, give me stuff from your land, I'll be happy. But then all of a sudden, now we have all these states, now we have these countries with states, and now we're supposed to, hey guys, let's also employ a little democracy here, you guys gotta have representation, but now who the heck represents who? Um, And fighting over, you know, so I mean, I think Lebanon's a good example. You have 18 confessional groups or like religious groups um, and based on the percentage of the population that determines how many representatives each religion gets in government hmm. um, I mean I think the president has to be Maronite and then your prime minister has to be Sunni and, you're, and as a result there hasn't been a census done since bef- since I think 19 since the 1930s <laughs> and Lebanon became a country in the 1940s and this because is, they are so scared uh, of this change of percentage of population. So instead of, you know, it becomes like a, like, yeah. oh my goodness, like, oh my goodness. So it's just the longer they put it off, it's almost like the more awkward it gets to do because they know there's no way it can actually be the same way. And then your power dynamics change. You know, you're not just voting for a political party. You're voting for your ethno-religious political <laughs> regional party. <laughs> Yes. Which are all tied into like, you know, old families before the country was. Even, I mean, it is right. Exactly, it's, it's a lot. It's the same way in a place like <laughs> Afghanistan. Like there, it's there's specific lineages that run deep. That actually is what should give someone power, legitimate power, or power, or and so to to sprinkle democracy and representation over the top of it. It isn't that. Isn't mash? <laughs> yeah, and it's not that. It's not that this group of people are are worse people or their their governance style i mean it might not be as effective as sort of the separation of church and state but you're just not going to get that there right now and it adds it raises a whole lot of eyebrows obviously from more of like yours truly secular opinion on on government but it, it i think we see cultures evolve and it takes sometimes a really really long time and we just won't be around to necessarily see that change um, and, and it might get there, like these things might iron themselves out, but it might not be in my lifetime that it happens. Um, so I don't know, that's like way forward thinking and probably more spacey and off topic, but with that in mind, how, how do you see, I mean, it would take, what would it really take to see some sort of, I, some, some people would say that ongoing tension and conflict even though we don't necessarily want to frame yes. the Middle East with conflict or, or at least provide context to how it got careful. to this point. Be careful when we speak about it. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, and I don't, where was it going with this? Um, that, oh, I should say, it, I think a lot of it is, it's in a lot of other countries' interest to have these sort of disruptions in other parts of the world. For example, the U.S. use, this is the one that I really love, the U.S., um, would pick sides between Iran and Iraq, and they just didn't need one to be too bigger than the other, and they would just supply either side with weapons to disrupt the other side. And so <clears throat> when the invasion of Iraq happened and they got rid of Saddam Hussein, there's a massive power vacuum. There's a huge bubble. Um, when the U.S. rolled and left in the early 2010s, um, there was one country iran namely that was in a huge position to create a lot of influence in that region so i guess you know overall it's like what 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 could happen or what should happen at least between the palestinians and the israelis that could at least force a little bit of change that doesn't mean that is you know even just going to the two-party system or the two-state system everyone likes to talk about the two or two country two-state system (laughs) 
there could probably be a lot more done prior to getting there and a lot of foundation laying that should happen to get to a successful solution. And I'm wondering, maybe that doesn't make sense, but if it does, does. what are those, what are those things that you see that would be so important to get there? Um, I, this is not as much my expertise just because I haven't researched other places as much. Um, but we do have other examples of, you know, pretty horrible situations. I mean, look at slavery in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, who at that time could have conceived now? Um, I mean, look at South Africa and what South Africa has done. So there are models um, for kind of how to get out or like, you know, kind of change these really sticky situations. And they're not pretty. Um, they're not perfect. They don't get us to where we want to be immediately. Um, but there's going to have to be a lot of recognition and accountability on both sides, um, which at this point is just not going to happen, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately. But what's really interesting with this, going back to the Sheikh Jarrah and this neighborhood, is if you if you watch this as like a legal kind of battle and setting like legal precedent, Based on all of this international pressure, the courts have delayed ruling on evicting the Palestinian residents multiple times. Um, And actually, let me find it, because right now we have um, the Israeli attorney general is going to sit and review the family's cases. Like, I mean, it has it's gotten so much international attention that as a legal case, um, I, I'm going to be very interested to see what happens. Yeah, it's a, it almost seems like maybe, I mean, we, a lot of people, I think, struggle to even find the last time that the tensions were so high. Um, it's yes. been it's been a second. Um, but then, you know, every time the context is a little different, but the narrative is probably overwhelmingly the same. Yeah. The same. But this go around, I think it's been a bit different and maybe that's because there's more podcasts talking about it there's more social media awareness there's tiktok i mean there's there's just so many new ways and inventive ways to get information out quickly and even yeah. i think it was even interesting even my reaction to the way um our um uh, secretary of state and our president sort of backed up israel and it really wasn't it was, it's almost as if, and this is my opinion, I don't give this super often, but it, you know, it almost sounded like, uh, <laughs> all right, you know, Israel has a right to defend themselves. And it was like, that's kind of what we're going to say because it, I think there is optic optically, it doesn't look that great. It doesn't, and it, I don't care who it's you not are. That great, yeah, you know? just even if you are like a pro pro Israeli for whatever reason, thinking back to our childhood, you could still look at the situation for what it's worth and come to the conclusion that it's kind of mm-hmm. shitty. Mm-hmm. So, and and I think that's why I felt it was so important for to get a different voice on here that's not mine and and John's to to because I think what we debate about is at a really high level and it's sort of about legitimacy. And I don't know that it's even kind of a pointless, sometimes it's almost a pointless debate to have because it's the the current situation is what it is. It's not going to change any way. It's not going to change drastically in one direction or the other. In fact, if it does change given the power and the resources, um, and the international backing, I don't think it would look good for the Palestinians if it went one direction or another. It's certainly not going to go the other way, um, it, it, which isn't sh- a shocking statement. It isn't revolutionary, <laughs> but it is. I think that's just where we're at. And and so I'm glad for the more nuanced argument, not argument, but the nuanced discussion, a little bit of history. And I think we should definitely do this again. Um, I think history yeah, lesson. I mean- 
Yeah, I think we didn't even get into anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. <laughs> well, and-, <laughs> and and I know, and I, I when I we originally broached you about coming on, I was like, man, we could probably have long form and do like three hours of this because I think there's a massive historical perspective that goes back beyond the Ottoman Empire. I think there's there's just so much more to talk about. Exactly anti-Zion, like, and so yeah. I I do want to do this again. Uh, but <clears throat> I'm glad that we did get to talk about, we're coming up on an hour, we did get a chance to, to talk about the current events, why we're at where we're at, and, and a little bit of a little bit of forward thinking. So, But I know it's late, you've been working, and you've so graciously given uh, the time here, so I'll give you a, just a, you know, is there a place we can follow you, is what... Um, anything you're reading right now that's awesome that we should be... Uh, we should be picking up and reading and any final thoughts. Yeah. So there's actually, I'm, I'm going to leave y'all with some books. Um, and if you, you'll give Char- them to me and I'll put them in the show notes. Yeah, ex- absolutely. Um, they're fairly unbiased. They contain historical documents. Um, there's also some that kind of share like Palestinian identity and Israeli identity and kind of like the narratives that people have. Um, to give a very fair and balanced understanding of how both sides are feeling and kind of the facts that got us here. Um, yeah, awesome. I can send those to you if you want to post them. Yeah, and then also the articles that you mentioned, um, and there's some infographics that obviously we can't yeah. see on the audio side, and we'll post those all in the show notes as well. So, well, hey, look, yeah. this has been this has been awesome, and so thanks for making the time. Um, I know. Um, you put yourself together and, and even after a long day of work. And so that's much appreciated. And I think this perspective will go a long way. So, um, thanks for being here. And until next time, we'll, yeah. we'll chat. All right. Sounds good. See thanks you. for having me. Of course. <laughs>